If you'll turn your Bibles to John chapter 1, John chapter 1, come to that time where we open God's Word. We're in John. We did an overview last week, if you were here, uh, went through bird's eye view of the entire book. One of my favorite commentaries that I uh, was informed of as I prepared for John uh, was a commentary by D.A. Carson, most uh, Bible conservative Bible scholars and theologians and pastors recommend D.A. Carson's commentary, and I can see why. It's just a great, great commentary on the book of John, and if you're interested in more deeper study of this book, I would certainly recommend that one, and I've used Boyce and uh, Morris and others as well. But one thing Carson said in that commentary was John has lots of narratives on it, long narratives. And so his recommendation is that if you're going to teach the book of John, don't do it in short spurts, but do it in long passages. Because people might get bored, he said. I thought, oh my goodness, I already plan to do two verses today. So I've already violated what he said even before I got to that section of the book. But uh, his point is that it's a book of narratives. And he said, don't spend six months in the prologue. That's verses 1 through 18. I'm not going to do that. I will take his warning on that. And we'll look at longer sections as we go through this. But today the focus will be on verses 1 and 2. uh, Because these are such rich verses. It's a a theological uh, masterpiece expressed in a few words here in John 1, 1 and 2. You recall, if you flip back to chapter 20 uh, of John, John 20, verse 30 and 31, just a reminder, this is the purpose that John has laid out for us. Uh, He says, the whole reason he has written these things, verse 30, therefore, this is John 20, verse 30, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these, he says, have been written, notice, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So in other words, he's saying he is calling you to a verdict when you're done with this. I present all of this to you for a verdict, and that is that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and Jesus is God and have life in his name and believe in him and have life in his name. And you must know who Jesus is, and that's what he does to bring you to that point in the book of John, to John 20, 30 and following. So it's the question that people were asking in Jesus' time. They're still asking this question today. Who is Jesus? When Jesus was in, in Jerusalem at the, uh, the triumphal entry, who is this was the question. People were asking the question when Jesus was sitting around the table and he forgave somebody for their sin. Who is this that can forgive sin? Herod was nervous because he had put John the Baptist to death. But then he starts hearing about this man called Jesus who's out there doing all kinds of miracles and drawing crowds to himself. And he gets threatened and thinking, well, did John the Baptist come back to life? Uh, Who is this, he asks. And that's a question you see over and over and over again. Who is this? So to believe in him, you must know something about who he is. And that is what 
John does. He states his thesis, in fact, go back to John 1.1. He states his thesis right there at the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's his thesis, and now 21 verses of proving it, of proving that statement. That's a good thesis. When you state it, and then you prove it. And so that's how this will go. And he's got this prologue of 18 verses here at the beginning. And in this prologue that we read earlier in our service, he has all the major themes laid out that he's going to talk about in the pages to come. Light and darkness. The opposition that Christ would face. Being born of God. Themes like that that you see in this prologue. These first 18 verses, they'll just be developed further as we go through this gospel. He starts this gospel different than any of the other gospel writers. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The others don't do that. Mark starts out with the ministry of John the Baptist. Luke starts out with angelic visitations to, uh, John the, about John the Baptist's birth and the birth of Jesus. Matthew gives a lineage starting back at Abraham and going all the way through line of David to, sh- to prove who Christ was, the Messiah. But that's not what John does. John goes way back. John goes way back before creation of the world to tell us about Jesus. And that's a presupposition to the whole gospel right there that this Jesus is God. This Jesus is not just a man. This Jesus is the God-man. This Jesus is God himself. And that's what he's done here in these first opening verses. This one that he is writing about is God. Look in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Go down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Those three verses tell you the Word is God, the Word became flesh. The reason for the incarnation, so what? Verse 18, so why he did it? Verse 18, so he could explain God. No one has seen God at any time, verse 18 says. The word, the word is the keyhole that we look through to understand the infinite God. That's his point. Listen, folks, it takes God to explain God. Would you not agree? It takes God to explain God. Who else can do it? And Jesus is God and Jesus came in the flesh to explain God to us. To exegete is the word. Exegete God for us that we might know God. It is interesting that he uses the word word in verse one. That is an interesting usage there. Uh, Nobody else uses that in the New Testament to talk about Jesus. And um, it's interesting that the other gospel writers for sure. And in fact, John doesn't say any more about it after John chapter one, after the prologue even. But he chooses to use it here at the beginning. And that's interesting, very interesting word. Logos was with God, and the Lagos was God. Um, 
And I think you have to look at it this way. It has appeal or it gets the attention of both the Greek reader and the Hebrew reader when they would look at John. To the Greeks, logos was a concept. Logos was word in, sense, in, in the sense of rationalism. Uh, logos was the word in the sense of it was the idea or the concept, the creative concept in the universe. Very philosophical term. Not personal by any means. Very impersonal. In fact, what John is doing here is personalizing logos, something they would not think to do or, or would do. That's to the Greek mind. To the Jewish mind, logos or word would also have meaning because when they think of God, for example, they think of a God who speaks. They think of a God who at creation said, let there be light. They think of a God who speaks, with, gives messages. Uh, the prophets, thus saith the Lord. So they a speaking God, a God who speaks into the darkness, a God who speaks into the silence. It's a very appealing term to them as well, the logos. Logos is, is, uh, means, actually means a message. Keep that in mind. It's an idea of a message more than just a word. Rima would have been the word that would have been used if you just want to say word alone. But this is about a message. It's about a series of words. It's about um, a words that express something. It's about, that's what a word is. It's a unit of expression and a combination of, of that unit, a combination of words expressing something. And so what John is saying, basically, is Jesus came into the world, came into the world to preach a sermon about God. That's what he's saying. To speak about God, to tell us about God. He is one who brings that message. And so the word logos to the Greek and to the Hebrew is sort of a bridge word. MacArthur says in his commentary, a bridge word um, give appeal to both the Jewish mind and to the Greek mind. However, in the Greek mind, they would never personify it like John does here. It makes it a person. The word became flesh. The word is God. Not a concept. That's, that's not enough. It's not just a concept or an idea or rationalism or anything else like that. And so John is, John is saying the same thing that the writer in Hebrews 1 says. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, notice, in these last days, has spoken has spoken to us, Lagos, a message in his son. His son exegetes God. His son explains God. The best sermon about God is Jesus. That's this point. God's sermon became flesh and dwelt among us. Son came. See, God is preaching God and Jesus is his best sermon about who God is. Let's take a look at three things this morning that this verse teaches us. Three things that you want to get down about Jesus. Three very important foundational Christological truths 
that you want to get down and understand because you must, you must believe these things to have life. You must believe these things to even be a Christian. First off, notice it says in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, saying this preexistent Jesus. The Word is Jesus. As verse 14 tells us, the Word became flesh. But this takes us back to Genesis 1. It takes us back even beyond Genesis 1 and eternity past. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But even before the universe was created, the eternal Christ, the eternal word existed. It's very important. He's uncreated. He's eternal. John is saying that while other things had a beginning, the word did not have a beginning. This is important. Other things started, the word did not start. The word is eternal. Heaven and earth became. Adam and Eve became. The word was pre-existing. When God said, let there be light, the eternal word was there. In fact, he created it. He already existed. I bring this up because early in church history and even today, their Arianism was on the scene. Uh, Arian was a, a preacher in, um, I want to say in Northern Africa, maybe, I may, I may have that right, Alexandria, yes, in, in Northern Africa in the three, 320s. And I just say this to you because he preached, he preached and, and really took a lot of churches away from the eternality of Christ. He preached sermons about Jesus having a start. He sang a song like this, had a little jingle. It went like this. There was when he was not. In other words, there was a time when he was not. Talking about Jesus. He argued that the sun started, the sun began, he did not exist, but then he popped into existence. That's what he said. A lot of people went in that direction. Folks, that is modern-day Jehovah Witness teaching right there. That is what Jehovah Witnesses say today. He was the original Jehovah Witness. Uh, this verse destroys that. This clause destroys that. Could you say in the beginning was the word and it was possible that he came like five minutes before Genesis 1-1? Well, Genesis 1, like John 1-3 says all things came into being through him. Meaning he's, to be a creator, you have to be a non-contingent being. You have to be one that was not created yourself. He is the creator, the uncreated creator. Verse 3 says, he was the pre-existent, co-eternal with the Father. I am, he said. The same thing God said about himself in Exodus 3. Jesus said, I am. 
I always existed. I always existed perpetually, continually, and eternally. No beginning and no end. The Nicene Creed met, the council met in uh, the 300s. Athanasius, you may remember that church history name, fought heavily to destroy Arianism. And finally the church came out and said that it was heresy what the Arians were teaching. Refer to that more in just a moment, but just to let you know, it starts out there. He's eternal. Secondly, you will notice in John 1.1 that he is distinct from the Father. Notice that. In the beginning was the Word, notice, and the Word was with God. Really nothing surprising or uh, difficult about that statement until you read the next statement. You say the Word was with God, notice, and the Word was God. You see, nothing profound about saying he was with God, but now you're saying not only was he with God, but he is God. And so you're already seeing the introduction here of the doctrine of the Trinity. Was with God. Um, he is God and he is distinct from God. When you think about withness, when you think about being with somebody, you think about I am here and you are there. That's being with somebody. When you think about being with somebody, you're thinking about there's a distinction between me and that person. That's distinction, face-to-face -face relationship. So John is saying the Word was preexistent, eternal, in a face-to-face -face relationship with God the Father. Turn to John 17 just for a moment. In John 17, verse 5, and I'm talking about the distinction here, okay? I'm talking about the distinction, this face-to-face -face relationship. This one who was with God, and we're going to see in a moment, is God, also is distinct from God the Father in that he had a face-to-face -face relationship with God. Verse 5, John 17. Now, Father, this is Jesus praying the night of the Last Supper. He's going to be crucified the next day. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself. He's, this is the Son praying to the Father. Glorify me together with yourself, with the glory, notice, which I had with you before the world was. Before Genesis 1-1, the creation of the world, God the Son had a relationship with the Father face-to-face, -face, deep and personal communion. Look at verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, notice, and I in you. It talks about we have union. I'm in you, you're in me. He talks about have others having unity based on our unity. This is a prayer. That prayer, by the way, has come true. We have unity in the body of Christ, he prayed for us to have unity. We have unity because of the Holy Spirit uniting us as a body. But his point here is that the Father, are, you're in me and I'm in you. And they may be also be in us. Go down to verse 24. 
Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so they may see my glory which you have given me. For you love me, notice, before the foundation of the world. You see that? The word was with God. Before the foundation of the world, the word was with God. By the way, the word was is in the imperfect tense, means past action, continuing. The word was in the beginning. The word was always there and continues. That's imperfect tense. So the distinction is very important. What does the father do? The father sends the son. The father uh, speaks to the son. The father on the cross forsakes the son. You see distinction there. Father, son. And this doesn't give any room for modalism. Some people have tried to insert modalism in here because some people have a hard time explaining this, and this is very hard to explain. They insert modalism, meaning we got one God, but he has different modes. He sometimes puts on his Father hat, sometimes his Holy Spirit hat, and sometimes his Jesus hat. That's modalism. One God, three different modes. And he switches back and forth between those modes. That is not what we're talking about. We're talking about uh, distinct persons. Father, Son, not mentioned here, even Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. That that. That uh, council I was telling you about at Nicene where they condemned Arianism, which was teaching that Jesus is not eternal. They made Jesus into some kind of sub-God. We'll see that in just a moment as well. But the point is, at that council, they said this for the first time. That council said Arianism is a heresy and that God is one. He is one essence. Three persons. Three distinct persons. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. That's the wording of the doctrine of the Trinity. Trinity, you will not find in the Bible anywhere. You will not find that word anywhere. It's a word that theologians use to describe this triune God, to describe the union that exists between three persons in the Trinity. The Jews have a problem with this. They had a problem with three persons. They said, you people worship three gods. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Judaism said there's only one God. That's the Shema. Their God is one. And I understand that. And as Revelation has gone through the scriptures, it's become more and more clear of the nature of the Godhead. But you do get signs of it. Back in Genesis chapter 1, Elohim Created the heavens and the earth. That's plural. Created is singular. Some people don't make a big deal about that, but you have a plural God singularly creating. I think that's pretty significant. A, a, a plural subject with a singular verb. You see it again when God made man. Let us create man in our own image, our own image. You see, you see 
just glimpses of this truth and this reality. The angel of the Lord, as we see in uh, the Old Testament over and over again, with attributes of God doing things. So I understand that. We, we understand uh, what Judaism's arguments on this and the difficulties they have with this doctrine and the accusations they made that we were worshiping three gods. In Psalm 2, God the Father refers to God the Son as God. Thy throne is forever. Hebrews chapter 1 refers back to that when it teaches of the superiority of Christ over anyone else. I just say these things about the Trinity, even though that's not the primary teaching of all of these that's in these verses, but it's certainly implied in this. Jesus was with God, and now we move to the next phrase, Jesus is God. He's equal to God, and that's important. He's eternal, he's distinct from the Father, and he is equal to the Father. And this is important. This is going to be the, throughout the book of John. If you were with us last week, you saw that over and over again. That's why they wanted to kill him. That's why they wanted to, to uh, throw rocks at him and crucify him. Blasphemy. Claiming to be God. You make yourself out to be God. You make yourself out to be equal with God. This is important to John's theme throughout the rest of this book. For 21 chapters, he's going to prove this over and over and over again. Once again, I say to you, Jehovah Witnesses, for example, and the other cults make a big deal out of this verse. Jehovah Witnesses especially, though, what they will do and what they say is because if you look at that verse, and since there's no the or no article before God in the Greek, and there's not, the word was God. It doesn't say the word was the God. It just says the word was God. They say since there is no the in the Greek, you can add the definite article A in front of God, and it reads this way, and the word is a God. You see that? That's what their new world Bible says. The word is a God. They've inserted the article, and they use a Greek grammar rule to justify doing that. The problem is, and what that does, is that puts, that puts Jesus below the Father. That makes Jesus a sub-deity. I don't even know what class they put him in. I've heard some of them say, well, he's like Michael the archangel. He's like a sub-deity. He's not deity, he's a sub-deity. But the point is, it makes him to be less than God, and less certainly equal than God, equal to God the Father. He's a halfway God, basically. Two points about that. Jehovah Witnesses, when they do that, they're very selective in their translation, with, with that translation principle, which says you put an A in there when there's no the in the Greek. You just insert an A. The word theos, the word for God, is used 282 times in the book of John. And only 16 of those times do they translate it the way they do in John 1.1. What I'm saying is, 
this rule that is so important to them, so important that they do this, they only use it 16 times in the book of John in front of God. It's interesting. They don't, you've got to be consistent. You've got to be consistent if you're going to translate. And they've chosen this verse especially, verse 1, to use it. In fact, if you look in John 1, 1 through 18, look at this with me. Verse 6, this is from their translation of the Bible. There came a man who was sent as a representative of God. His name was John. They do not put of the God or of a God. Notice that? That's inconsistent. Where is your A rule? Why don't you apply the A rule in front of that mention of God? Go down to verse 12. God become gods. Why don't you say a God there? Why don't you insert it there? This is an important rule, you say. Be consistent. Verse 13. But from, at the end of it, but from God. There's no A in front of that God in their translation. They say it just the way we say it, from God. Why not be consistent? There's no the in the Greek. Where is your principle and where is your rule? Go down to verse 18. No man has seen God. Where is your A rule there? They don't put A in their translation. In fact, this should apply to all the nouns. Look back at verse 1. Beginning should have an A in front of it because in the Greek it doesn't have the the. We've put it in there because we know what you're talking about. So all I'm just trying to say is, and light, the same way verse 4, in him is light. That's a noun. Put a light. Be consistent. When you don't see a the, insert an a. When you don't see a the in the Greek language, insert the article a. And they, and they don't do that, folks. Greek scholars know that nouns are definite even if they don't have a the in front of them. That's important. In English, we put these in front of things. But in the Greek, it's understood. Nouns are always definite in the Greek, even if they don't have a the in front of them. It's not a beginning, it's in the beginning. Another point let me just make about this. If they're trying to say that Jesus is divine in verse 1, and saying that and the word was a God, if they're trying to say he was divine by putting an A in there, there's another word that John could have used instead of theos. He could have used theios, put an I in the middle, theios. That's a common word for godly, a common, common word for a divine person. He, John could have just put that in there if he's trying to say Jesus is less than theos. If you just want to say he's a great, godly, divine individual, then use that word because that's all over the place in the Bible. But John uses theos, the word for God. God the Father, God the Son, the Godhead. Because that's what John meant by what he said there. So that's, that's just two arguments with your Jehovah Witness friends that would come and argue 
on these points about that verse because that is the most attacked verse by cults. Jehovah Witnesses are just one example. But John's done something absolutely amazing in verse 1. Absolutely amazing. He has taught the, the doctrine of the Trinity in 10 words. He has taught the entire doctrine of the Trinity in 10 words. And they're all one-syllable words. I could just get rid of my D.A. Carson commentary right now. Because it's hundreds of pages. But look what he did. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's the Trinity right there. Minus the Holy Spirit being thrown in there as well. But you get the point. He's trying to lay that out for us and to show us. Uh, you, you can turn it around, the, the predicate and the subject. You can flip it around. God was with the Word and God was the Word. It says the same thing. Hebrews 1.3 says, And He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. You hear me say it again. Jesus is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. That's Hebrews 1.3. And so in John 1.1, 1, 1, he's chosen the most concise way in the Greek language to express who Jesus is. He's eternal, he's distinct from the Father, and he's equal to the Father, all in one verse. It's loaded, a loaded verse. Now, I want to think about the bigger picture just for a moment. The bigger picture. What does this mean? What does this mean to say this? Jesus of Nazareth was exalted uh, above all. And it was, it's true because he is God, a very God. He was God when he was born. He was God at his birth. He was God in Mary's womb. He was God in the carpenter shop. He was God in... All of his ministry, he was God on the cross. He was God at his burial, God in the tomb. He's God a very God. Now, you can't kill God. I'm not saying that. That's God in man. That's why he became a man so he could die. But the point is, he was always God. He's always God. He was a person. He had two natures, divine and human, in one person. In John 10, 28, listen to this. You can, in fact, just look at these with me. John 10, 28, just a reminder of these. John 10, 28, verse 28 through 30. Jesus says this in verse 28. I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Verse 29 my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Go to chapter 14. I'll tell you, flip back to John 8 just for a moment, and then we'll go to 14. John 8. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, this is John 8, 58. John 8, 58. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Before Abraham, I continued to perpetually exist. 
I always like the verse in Revelation where he says, I am both the root of Jesse and the descendant of David. You call that? I am the root of Jesse. David's family is Jesse's family. I am the root of Jesse and the descendant of David, meaning I am the reason for David and I'm a descendant of David. You see that? God and man. I'm the reason, the explanation for David. But I am also a descendant of David. Another verse, let me just see. Another verse is um, John 14, 9. In John 14, 9, Jesus said to him, this is Philip, show us the Father. I, I looked at this with you last week. I just want to highlight it again. John 14, he, show us the Father. Hey, listen, listen, Jesus, it'll just be enough. We'll be comforted. You're, you're, we know you're leaving. We'll be comforted if you will just do something really huge here and show us God. Just give us a vision of God. Just let us see God. That is what Philip wanted. Verse 28, I give, excuse me, verse 9 of John 14. And Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. See, Christianity is not about, folks, it's not about just moral law codes. It's not about rituals. It's not about just coming to a building on a certain day. It's, it's not about singing songs. It's not, about, it's not cultural. It's about God and Jesus Christ, okay? That's what this is about. That's what you're here for, God in Jesus Christ. God, man, Jesus Christ to be exalted, to lift him up. Turn to Colossians 2.9. He's a great eternal God who came in human flesh. And this is an important verse, Colossians 2.9. And this is a great verse if you want to, if your Jehovah Witness friend comes to your door and wants to talk about the Bible with you, say, yeah, I want to talk about the Bible with you. In fact, I want to talk about one verse in the Bible with you, and it's Colossians 2.9. I want you to tell me about this verse. I want you to, uh, to, to look at this verse for in him, all, this is 2.9, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. I want to know who the him is. I want to know who, what deity means. I want to know what dwells means. And then I want you to repent. I want you to tell me the meaning of those words and I want you to repent. I want you to see this first. Look, the verb dwells is in the present tense. means it's continually happening. Understand this about Jesus. It's not just that Jesus was eternally past and came in, in the world in incarnation, became a man, and took on flesh and lived here for 33 years, and then when it was all over, he left and said, I'm done. I just got rid of that body, and now I'm done. He says, and the only reason you might not understand it because you've never been God before, but I'm glad I'm not doing that anymore. He didn't say that. He's in body right now. You understand? This is what this is saying. He dwells in bodily form. Granted, it's a different body. It's a glorified body. 
a body that we will one day have as well. But right now, there's a God-man in heaven with the Father and the Spirit. Understand that. That's the implication of the incarnation. He became a man, yes, always existed, pre, uh, pre-existent, always eternal, always existing, but he became a man, took on flesh, took on a body, lived 33 years, and went back to heaven in a glorified body. He's still the God-man. Fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That is Christ right now. That's why he can be a sympathetic high priest. That's why he can understand and be our advocate before the Father. Show the nail-scarred hands. Implication is pretty, pretty incredible when you think about this. He dwells in bodily, he's deity in bodily form in the present. Was not just 33 years, is my point. Attach humanity to him, and he's full of eternal deity. So that's how John starts his gospel. Jesus is God, Jesus is eternal, Jesus is distinct. Jesus is equal to the Father. And then he summarizes in verse 2, and that's all verse 2 is, is a summary of what he's just said. He was in the beginning with God. That's how he, all he says, that second verse. But it's a summary of what he's just said. He was with God and he is God. Chuck Swindoll says something, I'll close with this this morning, that I thought was kind of interesting. Why is the deity of Christ so crucial to Christianity? Why must we insist that he is God? Simply put, we would have no savior, and this is important, we would have no savior if Jesus had been less than deity. No one but God could have, get this, lived out the law perfectly. And God demands perfection, folks. He demands perfection. And none of us can live out the law perfectly. But God can. And God did for us in Christ. He goes on to say, Thus, he earned, our right, he earned righteousness for us. You get that? He earned righteousness for us. Because we can't do it. We cannot earn righteousness We cannot make ourselves good enough for God. We cannot make ourselves acceptable to God. Jesus had to do it. The one that had to be the sacrifice had to be perfect, had to have lived the law perfectly, and had to satisfy both the righteousness of God and the wrath of God by dying. He says, and no death but a divine death could have served as adequate punishment for the sins of humanity. You dying for somebody else is not going to solve their sin problem or take away their sins. A divine death was required. It was not enough for Jesus just to be a good teacher or a moral example. He had to be God. 
It is not surprising that the deity of Christ is one of the doctrines most often assailed by the cults. For if they take away his deity, they take away his atonement for sins. Then salvation becomes, and this is what happens, then salvation becomes a matter of our achieving God's favor through our works. That's what you ask anybody in any cult. How are you made right with God? Who is Jesus? Two questions. Who is Jesus? And how can a person be made right with God? And that's what the cults do. Salvation becomes a matter of our achieving God's favor through our works, and that is exactly what they do, a system of righteousness but by works. The doctrine or the gospel, or excuse me, human achievement versus divine accomplishment. Listen, if Jesus is only a man, you can forget about everything I've said today. If he's only a man, you can just forget about him. You can just dismiss him. He makes no difference about anything. But if he, is, if he is God, he demands your total belief. He demands that you repent and put your faith in him. He demands your allegiance to him. If he is God, he has the right to demand that and call us to that. If he's just a man, forget it. If he's just a good teacher, forget it. If he's just a a good example, forget it. But if he is God, then everything he says, we're obligated to. We're obligated to. Thomas said this, and I read this to you last week at the end of the book, my Lord and my God, if you can't make that confession, you will die in your sins. If you can't make the confession that Thomas made, my Lord and my God, You will die in your sins. You will perish in hell. But then John says to believe in him is to have life in his name. Father, thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for these tremendous truths that we see in these two verses. Loaded verses, God, pregnant with meaning and pregnant with uh, deep truths. Difficult truths for us to get our minds around. Oh God, we praise you this morning. We praise you that the God we worship, the Lord Jesus Christ, is God himself. That our triune God reigns. That Father, we just thank you for the message of salvation that has come to us. The hope of salvation that has been preached to us. Faith in Christ, believing in Christ, trusting in what he has done, not ourselves. Believing in him as the the one who was sent the one who was God in human flesh, who lived a perfect life and and died the death that we need and deserve. We praise you and thank you for him. We lift him up to you today and we lift up his name this morning and lift up this congregation to you that if there's any in this room this morning that do not know Jesus, that they would embrace the Savior, that they would trust him and believe on him, that they might have life in his name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.